But this is not just any modern man. This is Indiana Jones. And with that factor taken into consideration, all bets are even. Welcome to the Indiana Jones Universe, the podcast that explores the incredible adventures of the world's greatest globetrotting archaeologist, Indiana Jones. Each episode is a casual and somewhat humorous opinionated conversation with a slightly sophisticated analytical study of the expanded universe content from the Indiana Jones franchise. You can expect to find discussions about the adventures of young Indiana Jones, the further adventures of Indiana Jones comic books, the staff of Kings and Emperor's Tomb video games, the Indiana Jones novels, the original soundtracks, and so much more. Hello, everybody, and welcome back uh, to another episode of the Indiana Jones Universe podcast. Thanks so much for joining us for episode 84. And today, uh, we are here to continue our discussion of the two-part story from the Marvel comic series, The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. Uh, Today, we're looking at The Gold Goddess, Chapter 2, Amazon Death Ride. Uh, which, as I'm saying it out loud, is probably what a lot of people would like for Jeff Bezos and his company. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but joining us, as always, to tackle this daring endeavor is my great friend, fellow co-host of this podcast, professional boat builder. Some might even call him a uh, marine archaeologist. But luckily for the both of us, he does not get lost in his own museum. Elijah, welcome back. Thank you, thank you. I, I'm excited to be here and share this comic with you. I think this one is my favorite of all the comics I've read. Uh, it's a great sequel to the first one. And honestly, like getting right into it here, let's talk about that cover. I, it raises a question for me. Uh, do you think Indiana Jones would transfer well to a Miyazaki film? Because, you know, he, he is famous for his old aircraft and everything. And this one, like the colors and everything, it's so well composed. It really makes me think about that. That's really interesting, actually. That is not an observation that I sort of thought about, but actually kind of thinking back to it, I'm not looking at the cover right now, but yeah, that opening shot, I totally see what you mean. Like the the design of the planes, which of course was a big deal for him in in a lot of his films. Uh, That would be really interesting when we talk about sort of maybe an animated Indiana Jones, like comparing that to the style of the Clone Wars versus, like you said, something like Miyazaki. That would be really interesting, actually. That's a great point. And, you know, speaking of the cover, I love actually this cover a lot because you see Indy standing on top of a plane with, again, his hat falling off. Like, the (laughs) details again. And, of course, we'll talk about where the moment in the comic is when his hat comes back. We talked about this in the last episode um, where, you know, we sort of see this moment uh, when Indy loses his hat, never retrieves it, and all of a sudden has it uh, randomly in this comic. So we'll we'll talk about that. Um, But, you know, the cliffhanger comes back, right? Issue number 10 here, directly following issue number 9, literally, as we have Indy barely falling off the skyscraper, and Marion uh, steals the gun uh, from the bodyguard uh, that was supposed to be protecting uh, the display room and shoots the Havidos warrior who is standing above him. Yeah, so it's, it's you know, she shoots him and he falls, and they, they really go to, go to the whole point. I mean, usually you don't always see this, like, for instance, when... You know, when the truck driver gets run over, he's sort of hidden by the rocks. But they really go to show you the guy falling, hitting every single ledge, 
But Marion saves Indy yet again, uh, and, you know, he's off on the... So this is, what, time number two she's saved him on the same edge of the building? Um, but he, he does a silly thing where he tries to follow this guy on a ladder, spanning two skyscrapers, and thinking the guy won't kick the ladder away. Uh, so sometimes Indy is a little too in the moment with the action and not thinking about what he's doing, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that was a rickety ladder, and that already screamed trouble just from looking at it. Um, and, you know, there are these great shots. You know, we talked about, again, the panel and storyboard and the way everything's constructed and configured of, you know, the warrior falling off the skyscraper really, really well. It's so cool to see that, you know, um, to, to kind of get the scale and height of it. And then, yeah, you know, Marion's feisty personality shining through again, you know, kind of reminds me of that quote from Raiders right after he meets her in Nepal and there's that huge bar fight. Well, Jones, at least you haven't forgotten how to show a lady a good time. You know, that, <laughs> that whole thing with Marion so upset that, you know, Indy has gotten into all this, you know, uh, business. And, you know, there's obviously this moment where, you know, yeah, he crawls across this ladder between buildings to sneak into the display room. My question is, first of all, how did all of the Havitos tribesmen get in there? Where did they come up with this idea? And then why did Indy think that it would also be successful? I mean, it looks like a bad idea right from the start. But Indy, like you said, is in pursuit, chasing that last warrior uh, to finally get back to the display room. And uh, he's, he's very persistent, that's for sure. And it's really interesting to see Indy, you know, having an adventure in the city as his environment, because I think we're going to see this in Dial of Destiny probably in a whole different way because he's much older. Uh, but we haven't really seen this before, you know, Indy going and doing dangerous things between skyscrapers. He's like Spider-Man or something. <laughs> I mean, it's almost ludicrous, but they do it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because I made the exact same comparison to Spider-Man when I was reading this. When I was rereading <laughs> this, I was like, wow, this kind of feels like Spider-Man, like the Manhattan, New York, him falling off the flagpole. It's like India is sort of channeling his inner Spider-Man here as, you know, of course, right when he gets to the other side, I love how the warrior waits for Indy to get there too. Like he doesn't just like toss the toss the ladder off. He waits till he gets to the last moment after he jumps over it and then he flicks it up and falls Indy tumbling down. And of course, yeah, I mean, this is where the extremities of Indy come back. I mean, we've seen short round Willie and Indy somehow survive a huge waterfall, uh, you know, after falling out of the plane. And then, of course, here, Indy, uh, of course, is falling directly down towards the street below, which has a great, uh, you know, sort of uh, sketch there as well, where you see how tall the skyscraper is. And, uh, yeah, he finally grabs himself onto that flagpole. And it was also interesting, too, that was when they revealed the title. Um, you know, the title reveal is right there after he falls. Next page, Marion is looking horrified and stunned to see Indy falling down, and he manages to grab onto that flagpole and save himself, uh, which is sort of that big moment here. But then we finally uh, transition back to the office, right? This is maybe our mini prologue here. Back to the office, and we see Indy and Marcus uh, listening to a threatening phone call. Yeah, he's getting a phone call, which we find out from this woman who we first saw at the beginning of the prior comic book, and who we now realize is Indy's main antagonist for these two comics. Right, and this is sort of a turning point of this second part of the comic here, where we finally realize who are the main antagonists in this story. Um, of course, their identities will be revealed a little bit later, but now we know that this is who Indy has to go after. Because in the first comic, Indy obviously had the idol. They were first disguised as these gray robbers. We saw their faces, but didn't know their true identities. And Indy thinks it's over. He's got the idol. He then loses it. Now this is the resolution. This is getting to the climax. Who are these villains and how is Indy going to stop them? 
And it's, you know, a very simple structure of a story, really. Um, and again, we'll talk a little bit about the villains later, who they are, and also why I think these are some of the more stronger villains we've seen in the comics, because um, they don't really conform to those typical stereotypes that we've seen. Um, but, you know, obviously, they give Marcus an offer. Basically, they will return the idol to him if they receive a large payment of money, and it only has to be delivered by Indiana Jones himself alone, with nobody else there. And then the phone line just cuts dead. You know, classic, right, of course. And um, the way she holds the idol in front of her face, with Zomek standing behind her with that menacing smile, really characterizes the villain so well, I think. And, and I think that was a really fun moment. Yeah, and it kind of, it makes you think, like, if they went to so much trouble to get the idol in the first place, A, why would they return it? And B, why do they want Indiana Jones to come down alone all the way back to South America? I mean, if he has to go down there alone, there must be something nefarious to it, which obviously it's a trap. And sort of, you see, Indy suspects this when he's on the steamboat, which I gotta say, I love the steamboat. Um, but one of the things I really love about this comic is it's such a globetrotting adventure. I, I kind of mentioned it in the last episode, but, you know, we get, we get uh, Marrakesh, we get Manhattan, New York... Um, skyscrapers too it's not like you know the places are different and the environments are totally different and we have like the jungle with the amazon river in brazil it's really a train ride yeah this one feels a lot more epic i think because we're so used to just like oh if they're back in the united states it's always at marshall college in connecticut that's it and you have manhattan that comes in there and here when indy returns to this jungle environment we're not in peru we're in brazil this time right? And Indy decides to go alone on this adventure, of course. And yeah, talking about what you said about the steamboat totally reminds me of Oganga, right? Right out of that. Um, and also this environment we've seen so many times, you know, in, in, in many, many instances, this is sort of the real moment that really is a callback to Raiders. Um, of course, we've seen Panama and Staff of Kings. Emperor's Tomb also has something simple. Like, we've seen this environment before. And right here, during this transitional shot, this is when we see Indy with his fedora. He somehow got it back. I'm not <laughs> sure if Marcus was involved in some case, or he just has a stash of them back at Marshall College, but he somehow has his fedora back, so that was kind of fun to see. And I really wanted to talk about this shot here. Uh, we sort of saw this at the beginning of part one. We were talking about sort of like Spielberg and his sort of like cinematic hero shot that they tried to sort of incorporate into this one. There's a great one right here as well. Uh, it's almost this darkened hero shot. Indy's head is tilted down, lots of low-key lighting and shadows. Only one of his eyes are visible. It was a really, really cool sort of moment where he, you can tell he's really persistent about getting the idol back, right? He talks about how if he's going alone, you know, there has to be some sort of connection with these villains, but he doesn't know who they are, right? So that's kind of a cool part there. And then, of course, we have this kind of small montage and narration scene of Indy traveling, and he now has a machete in hand, which that's an interesting uh, sort of callback to Temple of Doom. Of course, that movie wasn't out yet. Of course, that's what he uses to kind of get through the jungle. But yeah, this is a total flashback and reference to Raiders. Yeah, and that one panel you were talking about, it's almost identical to the one where he's holding the idol and he says, it's mine. Totally. It's like he has the same motive coming back, you know, a little bit of ambition, maybe a bit of greed going on, who knows. Uh, but talk about a striking figure. I mean, when you see Indy with the machete, you know, in the jungle and all these different panels, it feels like it's almost a, a prelude to what we see in uh, Temple of Doom. Uh, but I think the writers were really, they, they really honed into who Andy was as a character without even needing the example of Temple of Doom to sort of tread in the same footsteps. Right. And I think one of the cool things too is like, there's even these moments where 
you notice how the environment does sort of remind you of the movies a little bit. It's interesting how that's like such a characteristic part of Indiana Jones. Like anytime there's a marketplace, oh, it's Cairo. Or anytime there's a jungle, oh, it's Peru, right? It totally brings you back to that classic feeling of Indy. And even there's one small part that I thought was hilarious. I don't know if you picked up on this, but right before Indy uh, sort of, you know, he's chopping through the jungle with his machete, um, you know, real environmentally friendly, but he's going through the <laughs> whole thing. And you'll notice he finds that little hidden mansion he removes a vine from his view, which is totally like the vine that he swings across <laughs> to get to Jock's plane. You know, like those little things I thought were kind of fun. I'm not sure if that was intentional, but you could totally see amidst all the trees and branches that he moves out of the way, there's a vine standing right there. And of course, he realizes it's a huge trap when one of the Hovitos tribesmen comes soaring into Indy's view <laughs> with the spear in hand and Indy immediately fights him with the machete and then of course many more warriors just start coming out from the depths of the jungle Indy pulls out his revolver goes bam 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 you know begins to charge him relentlessly right and the shots of Indy's facial expressions are hilarious they are to die for you know when he's like oh i have the revolver and then he realizes that he can't shoot him in time then he's like i'm gonna charge him and then you know like all of his thoughts about what he's gonna do next it's so like sort of harrison ford-esque to me i, I love it yeah and that panel where he's firing off his gun it's like a very striking figure i think that's one of my favorite you know panels in this comic it's just like the way the lighting and everything from the pistol uh sort of highlights his face and puts him like in contrast of light and shadow it's like, wow, that's that's well composed, I'd say. But we have this kind of a fist fight where he's like going at it with these guys. And then he gets stabbed by a spear and miraculously his plot armor keeps him alive. Uh, but he's poisoned and they take him to the mansion where he meets Ilsa. Yes, the final reveal of our new villain, Ilsa Tote. Uh, not to be confused with Elsa from Last Crusade, who of course <laughs> is not related to the Tote family in any way. Uh, as far as we know, you know, there could have been something with Nazi Germany there, you know, a second cousin or something that we're not finding out about yet. Twice removed. But, exactly, right, right. But yes, this is, I think, you know, one of the great points. And before we get into the whole uh, Ilsa reveal, I, you know, I wanted to mention that, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about with this comic and maybe it being distinguished from some of the rest, I feel like these illustrations of the jungle are terrific. They're absolutely fantastic. The detail uh, I thought was really great. Of course, there's so many great moments here, especially when Indy gets hit with that poison dart. I really like when he gets knocked out so fast. There's that great way where he is visually sort of depicted of getting hit with that dart. There's those yellow circles around him of him sort of finally losing consciousness. I thought that was a clever way to be showing us, you know, what Indy is experiencing, right? Instead of just saying he goes unconscious, you'll notice that his view is these yellow circles and he can no longer see anymore. Same thing happens when he gets taken to the mansion, right? Indy is, you know, dragged to the mansion, which, by the way, I thought that shot was really funny for some reason. I don't know why, but Indy getting dragged across the grass with his head falling off unconscious <laughs> was really funny to me. I'm not sure why. You know, we think of Indy as this great hero and to see him get dragged across, you know, uh, like <laughs> this grass field uh, with almost no attention or care was really funny. And then, of course, when he gets taken to the mansion, the exact same thing happens as I just talked about. There's a great sequence of illustrations that visually depict him opening his eyes and waking up. There's those yellow circles as Ilsa's face is finally revealed. And let's talk about this. Ilsa Tote, um, one of the big reasons why I wanted to review this comic is not only because it's a great continuation of Raiders, but it also incorporates so many of those elements. The idol, Sala, Marcus, Marion, 
and even adding something new that brings back a prior memory of the film with Ilsa Tote here, a brand new character who is actually Tote's sister. And her motives are very clear, right? She has a strong sense of vengeance for capturing Indy because she wants revenge over the death of her brother, obviously, who died at the end of Raiders. So I thought that was a really nice, you know, way to sort of bring in a new element of something old. Again, it's just like the same thing with the idol where we don't know what happened to it. If you read this comic, you'll find out, right? We don't know what happened with Tote, but if you read this comic, there's a new character who is continuing that legacy a little bit. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because, you know, this comic sort of incorporates elements of all three of the movies that came out in the 80s, um, which is really interesting, of course, because we only had the first one. Uh, and yet we have, you know, we've got Sala, we've got, uh, you know, whacking away in the jungle with a machete. We've got, you know, Indy coming across this blonde Nazi who is Ilsa, not Elsa, uh, but who is the sister of Tote. And then she's kind of ruthless. She you know, worked her way up the Nazi ranks and happens to, you know, have her opportunity at revenge for Indy. Um, and when presented with that opportunity, she isn't there to personally oversee it. She just has four guys take him out to the river to stake him down and let some crocs eat him. So I don't know how convinced I am with her motives there. Uh, but, you know, they'll have their showdown in a little bit, as we'll see. Yeah, and I'm actually going to create a little bit of a counter-argument there to that. You know, as much as I agree that I think, yeah, her motives are kind of unconvincing, right? Um, obviously, you know, she's serving the Reich and was ordered to retrieve the Chachapoyan idol because America's involvement, you know, opposes Germany's ideas for global expansion, you know, that sort of whole thing. It's like, okay, why do you personally want to take charge of this and what's your sort of, um, you know, conflict with Indy? Well, it's sort of very similar to what happens in Raiders with Tote. Um, where he is never the one who is always finally there to see Indy sort of live his final day. You know what I mean? Like he always gets other people to do all the dirty work for him. And he's so arrogant in that way um, that it sort of feels very similar to what Ilsa does here. Um, and speaking of Tote, I just wanted to mention, I'm not sure if you picked up on this as well. I loved that amazing panel when Indy comes to the realization that Ilsa Tote is related um, of course, to Tote from Raiders, there's that great shot of like a black and white faded image of his face right next to Ilsa's to kind of show that brother-sister relationship. I thought that was incredible. Really, really liked that a lot. Yeah, there's this sort of a wispy panel where like, you know, Tote's face fades into her hair and you can obviously see their siblings, and then there's this red background, which we kind of mentioned earlier. Amazing qualities and details we've had through this comic. Like, for instance, you know, you were talking about that jungle earlier. We have these little crickets and frogs crawling around in the frame, which I think adds a little bit of fun to the, you know, the foliage, as you would say. Um, but Indy is obviously, he's taken away. They try to bring him down river, and he makes this desperate escape attempt. Uh, which, as we learn, is really just to get his cuffs wet, um, which is a little bit silly. And, you know, they catch him as a slow fool, as they say, and they tie him back up, as you can see. Yeah, and this is kind of one of those moments where, you know, Indy gets taken into the jungle by Zomek, and, you know, he quickly escapes, right? He runs away, and then, of course, you know, he hints at that he wants to be captured, right? And so that was a little bit strange. And then we see that Zomek has his own motives, right? He wants to become the true leader of his tribe, and reclaiming the Chachapoyan idol will provide him with that sort of authority. So then again, we see what we've seen from all these villains. He leaves Indy to die alone. It's over, right? He's not going to be there to actually see Indy die. 
And one thing I wanted to mention as well is, you know, just throughout this entire sequence here, I can almost hear Flight from Peru playing in the background, right? As he's sort of escaping through the jungle, uh, right, from these Havitos captors, right? It totally brings you back. And then, of course, he finally gets tied down onto the riverbank, like you said, and there's these great illustrations that show his eventual escape from the ropes, right? Because of how wet the rainforest environment is, he's able to sort of shimmy his way out of them. Um, and then he says that he can't untie all the ropes in time before his dinner guests arrive, uh, which, <laughs> which, uh, which I thought was hilarious. And we see alligators attacking Indy, which right off the bat, I have to say, is such a good reptile for Indiana Jones and is rarely included. There might be another instance as I'm thinking about it. Uh, yeah, in Staff of Kings is one small part, and I think in another book too. I can't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, alligators, you know, going off of like bugs and the rats and, you know, the snakes. Like, alligators to me are such a great reptile for Indiana Jones. I love that. Yeah, in fact, I think they're briefly shown in Temple of Doom when, you know, they're on the bridge and things are falling down below. Oh, yes, of course. And right. they're in the river. Uh, so we do see them a tiny bit, but they're never like a prominent thing he has to fight, kind of like, you know, the brawler by the airplane, for instance. But I, I love the setup um, for, you know, this fight we get. It's narratively done, and it goes, Modern man, circa 1936, versus a monster whose race has survived since the age of the dinosaur. Some would consider such a contest grossly unfair, and in most cases, they'd be right. But this is not just any modern man. This is Indiana Jones, and with that factor taken into consideration, all bets are even. I mean, I love that. It's like a title crawl, and it shows a close-up of his face with, like, the rawhide uh, string that he has knotted together as he comes and he tackles this alligator. Right, and it was one of those things where... It was such an interesting use of sort of like a narrator, right? It wasn't giving us background information. It totally feels like an announcement, you know, like you hear it sort of like a bullfight or, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like modern man circa 1936 versus a monster whose race has survived since the age of the dinosaur. You know, like one, <laughs> one of those like, you know, trailers for a movie or something, you know, it was so strange, but I really, really like it to your point, you know, just the way that you were reading it, you were like, this feels a little strange. Like, who's saying this? You know, <laughs> you know, like, where is this coming from? It's like totally like sort of this moment of like a bullfight, you know, where like Indy's ready to go against the alligators. And it's like, you know, it's hyped up a little bit, which I thought was hilarious. And then we see Indy really sort of use his physical abilities um, to sort of his, his max here. I mean, he somehow climbs over this alligator to choke its neck which gives this intense battle sequence, again, very, very well drawn. But my question is, how does Indy not get attacked by the other alligators? There's that little sort of box where it says, the alligators were too freaked out by Indy jumping over. <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> no way, man, no way. <laughs> I, I think I think it's funny that like the narrator even like takes this perspective of the alligators in this scene, uh, which is really interesting. I think this is where the comic sort of blurs the line between film and, you know, literature in, the, in terms of books. Totally. Uh, which it can do that, which is unique to this, you know, this medium, uh, which I think is really great. Uh, and I can almost hear it in, like, the Smash Bros, you know, announcer's voice. It, it's very funny. 
Indy seems very skilled at this, right? And, he, you know, he's never done this before, fighting this alligator. You know, it's very, very kind of interesting as he, you know, finally, uh, you know, kind of kills this alligator, unties himself, rushes through the jungle again, another moment where you sort of hear flight from Peru because he hears airplane engines. And I can totally envision, jock, start the engine, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and this massive biplane appears on the dock and Indy fights a few warriors uh, and barely jumps onto the wing as the plane finally takes off. Yeah, I think we see here in Indy a little bit of Crocodile Dundee going on. I don't know if you've seen those <laughs> movies, but yeah, yeah great, great stuff. Uh, but with Indy on this plane, this really does feel like Raiders. You know, he jumps on as it's like, you know, going and it's taking off. Uh, and it's also kind of the where I get the, you know, sense of Miyazaki with these seaplanes kind of makes me think of Porco Rosso and stuff, uh, which is a great film. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Uh, but then we have Indy on the airplane wing, and it's it, this is kind of the setup to the frame we saw on the cover of the comic. Uh, and one interesting detail I noticed was that, you know, on the cover of the comic, he has a grapple. Oh, uh, yeah. A grappling hook. Um, but but in this, in you know, in actuality, he has Indy's bullwhip, which is really different. That is a great detail. Thanks for bringing that up. I did not even recognize that at all. Great, interesting kind of point to mention uh, versus the grappling hook and the whip. Um, and, you know, to your point, you know, this is such a throwback to Raiders. And there's that incredible moment when we see Indy on the wing and we see just a thought bubble coming from the cockpit of somebody yelling, Jones! You know, like such a great moment there. You know, he decides to sort of weaken the structure of the airplane for this crash landing. And, um, you know, this is finally when Ilsa notices Indy has survived. And, you know, again, I love that their hair is moving in the wind so aggressively, right? And, you know, I then want to talk about this really phenomenal idea they put together where we see Zomek steal Indy's whip, because of course he was taken captive before and took it uh, when Indy was tied down, and decides to destroy Indy with his own weapon. That is such a phenomenal idea. I love like total like, you know, sort of, um, you know, backhanded stuff like that. Um, to include that in an indie film would have been such a great idea. I don't know why that's so interesting to me, but it's just so cool. Like there's these small, you know, moments of narration here that are fantastic and create another level of suspense, right? It's like, but Zomek's philosophy is also his undoing for Indiana Jones knows the bullwhip. And it's one of those moments where you really feel aligned with Indy because, you know, while obviously Zomek steals the whip and tries to attack him with it, Indy knows that whip better than anybody. And there's this just badass moment where he grabs the whip midair, right? And let's remember that not many people can do that. It's very rare that Indy often has trouble with the whip, but he is able to grab it in midair. And it just feels so cinematic to have him grab the whip from him and pull him out of the cockpit to his death, which is that great huge shot. I think it takes up like half a page of him falling out of the plane as he falls and screams to his death. Yeah, I honestly, I kind of found uh, Zomek's death a little bit underwhelming uh, just because of how easy he was to be dispensed of. You know, he tries to whip Indy, Indy pulls the whip and he falls out. You know, there's there's no like real dual sequence between the two, which would have been, I think, maybe more fitting. Uh, but, you know, in terms of the te how tense the situation was, I think that was well done. Yeah, totally. And, and as Indy, you know, quickly then tries to climb from the wing of the plane into the cockpit as Ilsa starts doing barrel rolls, you know, Indy's flying all over the place. And Indy knows he must be careful around the Tote family, right? He knows what's happened before. He knows he can't just, you know, end this so quickly. And this is what you were saying. 
this is kind of like what we get in terms of a big final fight, right? Um, this is when Indy jumps into the cockpit and there's a great moment when he says, Fraulein, you know, <laughs> right? And he jumps in there. It's totally, you know, you know, kind of reminding us of Raiders and when Tote, you know, does that to Marion, obviously. And Indy then pilots this crash landing. And I just wanted to mention, you know, again, we talk about the attention to detail, the great illustrations here. There's an amazing shot here, which takes up, I think, again, another like big half a page here, where the sound of the engine is written in letters over the gust of wind and exhaust that is coming behind the plane as it soars through the sky. That was a really great shot, I think, uh, where we sort of see Indy really fighting, uh, you know, sort of his, his last strength he can muster against Ilsa there. Yeah, and like, I think everything in this comic that has to do with this airplane is just enthralling. I mean, the lines of motion, the attention to detail, and like, you know, on the cloth that's stretched over the frames, you can almost sort of see the frames beneath it. I think it's really well done, and there's such a sense of motion to it uh, that it really pulls you into this sort of climactic air fight. And it really feels like, you know, for instance, in Young Indy, like Attack of the Hawkmen and stuff, as you were saying about like, you know, the, the sense of sound and the way you're led across the page, it really, you know, just like the last comic, it's really creative. You read from left to right, you know, he's trying to take over the controls and then you follow the trail of the airplane as it descends down into the sea and Indy makes a, a final jump out of the plane before it collides and you have this huge explosion. Uh, so I think, you know, another example of how clever the, the artists were in taking a, you know, a script, a narrative, and showing it through the images. Yeah, that is a really great point. And especially towards this last final scene, when Indy jumps overboard um, with the idol in his hand as the plane comes to a crash landing. And again, Indy quickly swims to safety, and there's these great sketches of him jumping out of the water, right? Um, he's just completely drenched and soaked, right? And he mutters that quote, you know, he's not sure if Ilsa made it out alive, but it doesn't matter. You know, he knows that she might be back one day. But at least for now, he walks off into the jungle with a sly smile on his face as he <laughs> finally has the idol in his possession at last. And it's such a great way to conclude a previous story point from the films. Again, I mean, I talked about this in the last episode, but the way in which we are sort of really, you know, kind of tied to this idol you know, and the way it's become such a big part of indie. Like, if you talk about, like, sort of collecting indie stuff, the amount of people on Etsy who have made replicas of this idol, right, it's unbelievable. Like, we love this idol when we talk about indie. Just the way in which it was introduced in the opening of Raiders makes it, I think, a really great MacGuffin. And it's not even the main MacGuffin of the film. And so to bring it back in this comic was, was really clever. But uh, what are your final thoughts here about the entire two-part story of the Golden Goddess, or specifically the second part here? Yeah, I'm kind of curious what you would think if, for instance, like the idol had gone down with the airplane, would you be as satisfied with this with the ending? Right, that is a great point. I mean, for me personally, I don't think so. You know, I, I think the idol and retrieving it was fun, you know, and we've talked about this before. There are some things that should be left undone. For example, Abner is one of my, you know, sort of, you know, um, thoughts about, you know, let's kind of leave that alone. We don't need to find Abner necessarily. It's more fun when we don't know who he is. But in this way, yeah, I mean, it's really all about the idol. Um, I think it would have been fun also to bring back Sala um, as well. That could have been interesting. Like maybe, 
I'm not sure how you would have done this, but maybe sort of another plane flies through the sky and it's Jock and Sala ready to return, you know, or something. <laughs> and they save Indy or shoot down the plane, you know. Uh, that would be great. And sort of they meet on the, you know, the, the island there. And they're like, Indy, you know, and he's singing his chant and, you know, whatever, or whatever. <laughs> you know, Jock with his Yankees cap. Because there's another comic with Jock, of course, which is, was really fun. So, you know, there's these more, you know, moments where... Uh, you know, we could have had, I think, maybe bringing those guys back. But yeah, totally. I mean, the way this comic is set up, it's all about the idol. Um, to get the Chachapoyan idol finally uh, for that last time, it, it's fantastic. Yeah, and I guess that's sort of the difference between this comic and, like, you know, Last Crusade. You know, in the comic, it's all about this idol. But in Last Crusade, even though, you know, the Cup of Christ is the MacGuffin, really the story is about Indy's relationship with his father. And so the ending of that film sort of reinforces what's the true meaning of this movie, you know? Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing where it's like the search for the grail was actually the search for his father, right? It's, they're, they're, they're the same, they're equal. Um, and that was what was more important to Indy, right? Uh, when he says, and what did you find, Junya? You know, <laughs> that was the whole thing, you know, where Elsa never really believed in the grail, right? She thought she'd found the prize, um, you know, and what did you find, Dad? Me, illumination you know that whole thing like, <laughs> it's totally the same idea where it's like that there you know as much as we like the grail we didn't see the grail until you got into the actual temple and saw the grail knight and actually found it right for here we've seen the idol for so long it's been you know used in this comic it's been used in the film you know it's become such a staple i think whereas you know the grail to let go of the grail at the end when you had Indy's father there the entire time he was sort of the replacement but the grail was still important as a MacGuffin because that was how Indy and his father came close together was through the grail so yeah it's, it's totally one of those things that's really really clever but I think in this case to answer your original question after this long uh, sort of deviated answer yes I think it totally would have been better to to end just like they did with with him actually finding the idol in the end I mean, yeah, I, I really liked these comics. I thought, you know, just the attention to detail, the line work, uh, there's a certain craftsmanship to this comic that I think exceeds all the other ones I've read to this point. Uh, and I think, you know, the story really draws you in in a way that's, I think, you know, just as almost on par with the films in terms of, uh, you know, engaging stories and villains and, you know, twists in terms of, you know, where Indy is and kind of challenges he's facing. Uh, now, lots of new things that we hadn't seen it up to the, that point in the films, you know, Indy going through the jungle with the machete and uh, lots of also callbacks to the film prior, you know, with Sala and the rope and, you know, pulling down the statue. I think there's a lot of highlights from these two comics and I really enjoyed reading them. I completely agree with you. And that was a great thing that you just said there. I, you know, they're really engaging, I think is a great word to use for them. Um, they're just really fun. Um, but also, I think if you look at them, you know, with such a fine detail analytically, oh my gosh, I mean, this is one of my favorite adventures Indy's ever had. Um, you know, it brings back the spirit of Raiders, which is kind of the main point of this. And and I think this is one of the high points of, of this further adventure series and of the entire expanded universe. So thanks so much for joining us, guys. Hopefully you enjoy uh, this comic as much as we do. If you haven't read it, do yourself a favor and go pick it up at a local comic store. I'm sure you can find some of these. Also, there's the Omnibus editions that came out in 2008, of course, that have all these comics together. Um, if this is your first time listening and you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing. You can find us on 
all the podcast platforms out there. Uh, leave us a review. Tell other people what you think about the show. Tell your friends. Tell your family. We'd love to get the word out that we're doing this. Um, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about us, you can find us at www.theindianajonesuniverse.com. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can email us directly from there. Or you can follow us over on Twitter and join the conversation with lots of other indie fans. You can find us there at The Indie Universe. So thank you so much for joining us, guys, and we'll see you next time. Special thanks to Victor for making today's episode possible. Once again, I'm Elijah. And I'm Will. And until next time. So long, Dr. Jones. Jones.